I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Welcome to the seventh episode in our leadership series of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I'm the founder and host of Goodwill Hunters. I have to admit, this series was a bit of a risk. It's the first series we've done without a series partner in two years. I went back to basics and did it all myself. None of the usual help with sourcing guests or designing social media posts or marking up transcripts. It was all me at home making it happen and of course working with our brilliant sound editor Bruce Held from Noise International. The series was self-funded because leadership is an issue I personally care about so much. And when I came up with the idea for this series, there was no going back. I was completely determined to have conversations on purpose-driven leadership with some outstanding guests. And the risk has paid off. The response to this series has been huge, but it's also been very personal. I've never had so many listeners get in touch to share their own challenges in regards to having a purpose-driven, values-aligned career at the heart of social change and community development. I know that we're onto something special here, and I have some big plans for what comes next. But for now, we'll air the final episode in our first leadership series today, and then we'll be airing a very special three-part series recorded at the Oswater Conference in mid-May. You would remember our water series last year with our two outstanding hosts, Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween. Well, after much demand, they're back with a three-part series continuing the conversation on water for development. Stay tuned for that airing next week. Now, today's guest is Dr. Peter Chandra. Peter is an experienced executive leader and board director. I met Peter last year when I undertook my Foundations of Directorship course with the Australian Institute of Company Directors. It was a significant milestone for me personally because it was the first big investment I'd made in the next stage of my leadership journey. It was daunting as the average age in the room was probably double my age and I felt a bit out of place in the boardroom to be honest. But Peter was a supportive and insightful facilitator and we have stayed in touch since. In this episode, Peter reflects on his leadership journey and the lessons he's learnt as a board director and also as an executive in the development and not-for-profit sectors. Peter shares his philosophy on aid and empowerment, which aligns closely with my own. I hope you enjoy the episode with Dr. Peter Chandra. Thanks again, Peter, for being on Goodwill Hunters. I really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start by talking about your childhood and formative experiences, which is where we've started a lot of these interviews because it's so illustrative of of how a person became the leader that they are today. Mm -hmm. So for you, um, what were those formative experiences, including your childhood in Singapore? Yeah, look, um, a key aspect really is that uh, I grew up in, a, in a, a multicultural home. So my dad is Indian. My mom is half Chinese, half Malay, what they call Paranakan from Singapore. Uh, 
Um, so lived in a very multicultural country for 21 years um, and then moved to England for 23 years and, you know, exposed to a, a new culture as well, married to an English wife, half Scottish, half English, uh, and then moved to Australia in 2000. So um, that really had an incredible impact on just being living uh, in, in a mixed culture, varied culture. And one of the things that I really appreciated is that um, my parents brought me up to appreciate the value and the strong points of each of my culture, um, you know, whether it's the Indian background or whether it's the Chinese background. So they were very, very positive um, in how I should be looking at uh, essentially uh, a mixed marriage. Yeah. Ah, what a special childhood. I just love Singapore, actually. It's a funny aside, but of all the places I miss traveling to, I think Singapore might be the top of the list. Well, yes, it's such a vibrant society as well. And it's a, it's a hodgepodge of cultures and food and and languages and and also in terms of the geopolitical situation. It's right in the middle of, of the challenges of, you know, China, the West trying to influence it and so on. So it's so incredible place. Yeah, it's a fascinating place. And and I I know that um you also did military service, didn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that must have had an impact on you. Yeah, so um uh, in those days it still is. Uh, Singapore had compulsory national service, so at the age of 18, uh, I had, you know, to sign up for, for the uh, the military. So uh, you don't have a choice as to where to go, so I was posted to combat infantry. Um, and I was fortunate enough to uh, got involved in the uh, the commission officer. So I, I was trained as a, a commission officer and eventually, you know, uh, finished off my two and a half years training officer cadets to become commission officers. Um, whilst in Singapore as well, I was involved in various uh, youth leadership activities, primarily uh, in the church that I was involved with. And that was very instrumental as well. Um, it gave me, um, yeah, opportunities to to lead uh, youth groups and so on, um, which was um, very very handy, very helpful. Yeah, wow, it's an interesting experience and a, and a unique experience that you had. And since then, you've gone on to have a range of different leadership roles. Um, mm-hmm. including in the childcare and healthcare sectors. And, and when we last spoke, you, you told me that you were recently made chairman of a, a really interesting social enterprise um, working in the human trafficking space. So if we roll back a bit to some of those earlier leadership experiences, um, what did they mean for you and, and what did you learn from them? Well, being the uh, the CEO of a childcare company, this was about 20 years ago, my main task was to list it on the stock market on the ASX. So that was like a real baptism of fire in terms of leading an organization. It was quite a large organization. We had about 15 childcare centers. We had about 2,000 children that were looking after the 250 staff. So it was a substantial organization. And then we had to, you know, took it on to... Uh, uh, to list it on the stock market. So that meant dealing with a broader range of um, groups, you know, fund managers, investors, parents, uh, uh, staff, and so on. And um, that really helped me um, begin to really understand the challenges of an effective board. What are the skills required 
in terms of board leadership and so on. Um, so one as one of the things that I really learned in in that experience was the need or the crucial need of getting a, a balanced board with respect to um, the number of non-executives and executives. So the the childcare company was essentially a, a startup. And so most of the board members were the founders, they were shareholders, they were also employees. So I knew that it was critical to really get um, external uh, input into the board. So there was a, a huge um, impetus on my part to um, recruit some non-executives. And I was fortunate enough really to uh, uh, get a, a non-executive director. She was a former asset commissioner. So that was really great in terms of the whole governance issues. Um, I then also invited my, my mentor, my business mentor to become my chairman. And he was the former uh, chairman of World Vision. So I knew his values were very aligned to that of children. And he was uh, an, an excellent business person as well. He was on the board of um, the Myers Group in Docklands. So what I realized was one, a better balanced board in terms of executives and non-executives. Secondly, to really have a broad balanced set of skills um, into the board. And, and that, was, that was crucial. And of course, finally, it was to have board members that had a common vision. And our vision was to give good care uh, for the children. Yeah, of course. You mentioned that initially there were founders on the board or perhaps they continued to be founders on the board. And I've had a few interesting conversations on this recently on the pros and cons of having founders mm. on a board. What was your experience of that? Well, I think... You know, rightly so, um, they, because they were founders, you know, was very invested in the, um, the strategy of as to where the organization would be moving to. So we, we really have to take cognizant of it. But there comes a time when the organization is um, maturing. Uh, there's, there comes a time when if the organization wants to really um, expand, then we really need um, additional skills onto the board. So one, yes, appreciate their role, appreciate the history, appreciate of the fact that the organization is where it is because of them. But then the challenge is to convince them that for the sake of the organization that they have started and built, that we really need um, you know, a more appropriate uh, skills and input into the board. So eventually we did have to, um, I did have to request two or three of the, the founders to step down and at some point as well to leave the organization um, because there was a, a point in time where it, it could be uh, a break on the growth of the organization. So it's a very tricky, sensitive, but uh, you know, if dealt with appropriately and well, I, I think they would all see the benefit of the changes. Mm. And and you also made the transition from reporting to a board in your capacity as CEO mm. of, for instance, um, the childcare company that you spoke about to, to being on a board. Um, what was it like to make that transition? It actually wasn't easy because um, one of the things I realised is that your the level of thinking and the type of perspective that you're bringing in as a board director is very different from an executive. 
Um, so as an example, you know, if we look at just the financials as a CEO, you know, I'm I'm very focused on you know what is the performance like in terms of the quarter or the month, uh, particularly you know with fund managers breathing down my neck. Um, but at the as a non-executive director, I'm actually more concerned about what are the trends, what are the uh, challenges uh, coming up uh, around the organization. You know whether it's um, demographics, whether it's politics, whether it's population moves, and so on. Uh, as a as a non-executive, I'm really more concerned, and I should be more concerned about the 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 helicopter view, the longer trends, the the longer forces that will affect the organization. So it was quite a, a difficult transition, particularly when, as an executive, as you know, you want to get into into the the detail, you know, sort it all out. Whereas as a as a non-executive, you really have to step back because really your role is to provide strategic guidance and governance, but to allow your executive team to do what they're supposed to do. So that was a huge um, shift in, in mindset, um, shift in terms of uh, how do I get things done? And it, it wasn't anymore about you know, executing orders, but more about persuasion, um, debate, um, and, and challenge, yeah. Mm. It's a big transition to make in your career from um, executive leader in a CEO capacity to board director. And I guess it's at that stage of a career that a lot of people seek out professional development and, and help and support because it, it is a really, mm. it's a hard transition to make. Yes, it is. And um, I guess it gets better once you, you know, in most things, um, are involved in your, your new role. And the other thing that helped me as well is to say, look, um, the more and more experience I'm having, how can I have a, a wider impact? And uh, for me, uh, being a director, helping organizations to look at uh, strategy and the wider picture of what they're doing, why they're doing, um, I believe, you know, is, is a role, is a powerful role that I can play. So that, that helps as well in, in the transition. Mm, of course. And, 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 and a lot of your leadership and board roles have been in the social sector. And mm. we've had lots of really fascinating conversations on international development um, yeah. and some of the challenges the sector is facing. So I guess I want to go there now because a lot of our listeners are leaders in the development and the social sector, either on um, you know, managers or, or CEOs or board directors. Um, what? Let's start with the, the challenges. What, what challenges do you see the social sector and the development sector facing at the moment? Uh, of course, huge, huge. Um, but what, what I want to do is, is start really on um, a, a proverb, actually, that I uh, most of us are, are very familiar with, but had a, a, a third dimension to it that I, you know, until a few years ago, um, didn't hear. And this is the proverb about, you know, the, the fishing, the fishing proverb where, um, you know, again, most of us in the development world would have heard this proverb that says, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day teach him how to fish, you, know, you feed him for a lifetime. So all of us in the development world says, yep, this is what we need to do. Don't just give the fish. You know, we should be training um, uh, the fishermen. 
Um, but a, a number of years ago, someone mentioned that there is actually a third part to that proverb. And I said, well, you know, what is it? And he said, yep, you've got give a man a fish, you've got teach him how to fish, but there's a third dimension, which is who owns the river, right? Because unless um, he owns the river, whatever he catches is not his. And uh, depending on the owner of the river, uh, he is still totally dependent on whether he benefits from his skills. So that was a very powerful uh, proverb that helped me understand the challenges that we have in international development. Uh, so I began to realize that all three are important. You know, there is a place for relief yeah, where we give men a fish, particularly during disasters and tragedies um, where we need to, to provide that direct aid. But even then, um, and I'm, I'm merging that with the lessons I've learned, um, uh, even then, when we give, how do we how do we give uh, properly uh, without uh, undue unintended consequences? Uh, there was a book I came across called Toxic Charity, where the author gave the example of this charity uh, providing Christmas gifts uh, during Christmas time to poor families, and what the charity noticed was that the husbands were not present when the Christmas gifts were given to the children. The wives were there, the children were there, but not the husbands. And then they realized that the husbands were not present because um, they began to understand that the husbands felt ashamed that they were not fulfilling their role as being providers of the family. So what the charity thought was help, relief, giving you know, good Christmas gifts where everybody is happy had actually had some damaging consequences. So they changed their tag. They then decided to invite the husbands to help with their op shop where um, you know, they were given some vouchers and the husbands were able to use these vouchers to buy Christmas presents for their children. And in that way, they enabled the husbands to keep their dignity. So a slight twist, but, but very important to see that sometimes um, just giving help uh, has got unintended consequences. And again, you know, the authors also challenged us about how we view giving in terms of soup kitchens, you know, instead of just giving food, why don't we get the clients involved in planning the menu or preparation of the meals and so on. But in all of these things, um, most of us say it's, it's, it's in the all too hard basket. And so that's the challenge we need to have, you know, how prepared are we to, to really walk the, the hard the hard yarn? So that was really one relief, important, but we need to be very health, be very careful as, as to how we do that. The second part were the lessons that I've learned was more on development. You know, how do we um, teach the men how to fish? And yes, so most charities, fortunately, have realized the need to move quickly to development. Um, but there's two facets of development that I think um, we have to be, we have to provide more emphasis. One is to build capacity on the ground. That's really uh, the local leaders. Um, in 2016, my wife and I spent three years living in Cambodia. And one of the things that uh, I spend most of my time is really just to walk alongside the executive team um, in you know, doing things with them, you know, working at the executive level doing the team building, doing the project management, the strategic planning, the proposal writings and evaluation. It's really walking with them. 
And, you know, I've had a privilege to do that. But I think um, just being a um, someone from the West, telling someone from the East what to do is not the way. You know, we need to, to walk with them. Um, and the second thing I realized about development is that we really need to tackle the root cause. Yeah? So the root cause, for example, of, of poverty. As you mentioned, I'm involved in an organization that is um, involved with human trafficking. Um, but what we're doing actually is providing jobs for women that we've rescued from human trafficking. Right. So, you know, there's a huge area of um, or a huge number of NGOs being involved in human trafficking, uh, in rescuing women. But what is the root cause of human trafficking? And, and my view is that one of the root causes is poverty. So if we really want to tackle human trafficking, we need to tackle the causes of poverty. And um, my background being a business person, um, one of the areas I feel we can really powerful, powerfully help is to create jobs, is to set up social enterprises to tackle the root cause of poverty. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. And everything you just said just resonates so much with me. And, and I think I have the same experience each day working in development, but having a more commercial background and definitely having a more sort of commercial mindset is um, I'm also always trying to understand the systems that are at play and the root causes. And, and um, I saw another variation of that fishing proverb yes. <laughs> a few weeks ago that was something along the lines of you know, the, the usual teach, you know, give a man a fish, mm. he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for life. But then it said something like, or go upstream and figure out where the fish are. Mm. And, I, and I don't think it was exactly that. I'll have to find the correct quote. But I think it was, you know, getting to this idea of um, situating the problems we're trying to address in the bigger picture systems that are at play and understanding mm. all the other factors that are perpetuating the, the poverty and disadvantage. And, and I would say that that is what the sector's doing. Like we've come a long way. And, and I think for the most part, you know, we are thinking in terms of system-wide shifts. Um, but I think it's a great philosophy. I'm, it, it, would, you, would you regard that as, as your philosophy on aid? Yes, I, I think. I think in the end, as you're saying, you know, if we really want to truly help, then we have to tackle the root causes. And, and in most of the situations we're in, particularly in developing countries, um, the root causes are um, systematic one, you know, whether it's uh, economics, whether it's politics, whether it's because of corruption, infrastructure, um, biasness, and so on. So, it, so, and fortunately, you know, more and more NGOs are realizing that we have to somehow, in a very sensitive way, um, tackle those root causes. Right? Um, in my own um, skill set, I guess, and, and background, you know, I've been focusing on um, tackling uh, the root causes of poverty via economic uh, empowerment. So, you know, um, the, the word of empowerment is very important. There's many dimensions of it. Um, one of the areas that I've been involved with uh, is the whole area of economic em empowerment. Um, and some of the key areas that I believe I can uh, 
um, help in that area um, and should be focusing on is, you know, one is the, the funding model. So um, most of us are, are setting up social enterprises, but we really need to educate our funders and donors to have a realistic view of failure rates. Now, we know that even in, in uh, Australia, you know, the uh, small businesses and so on, you know, 90% of small businesses um, do not last after three to five years, right? Because it's tough, right? Now, think about a situation in a developing country where, you know, there's corruption, <laughs> the um, poor infrastructure, supply chain, and, and most of the, um, the funders and investors, impact investors that I come across, uh, assume that it's going to be successful. I said, no, we, you know, we've got to have as boards, we need to have a, a very much higher risk appetite uh, when it comes to investing in, in social enterprises in developing countries. Right? So that's one area is the risk appetite that as leaders, we need to really grapple with. Yeah. Secondly, we seriously need to think about the, the business ownership model. So yes, we can have successful enterprises, but if we don't allow employees to have to share with the success of the business, you know whether it's a, a profit share scheme or employee share scheme, then we are not empowering them to have direct um, uh, benefits of of the business. So we need to look at the business model it, itself as well when we set up uh, the social enterprises. And the third dimension as well, I believe, has um, as you know, uh, charities that want to help in these developing countries and in social enterprises, that we need to accept the fact that there is, uh, there needs to be a true level of overhead costs, right? Um, you know, we can't just say, oh, only 10% um, should be used by the partner organization. Most of them should go to the clients. Well, in most of our businesses, you know, overheads are very high, particularly in, in Australia. So why are we, insisting that it shouldn't be uh, the desired amount in a social enterprise. Right? Um, uh, in a recent report by the Social Ventures uh, Australia, uh, they realized that you know, true indirect cost should be around 20-30%. And yet most um, social enterprises or requests for funding um, are free to ask more than 10% because they know that donors want you know, money directly to clients. So we need to have a total revamp of, of our perception of providing sufficient funds for overheads, capacity building uh, for our partner organizations. Yeah. And this, this brings me to what I think is a really important leadership skill, which is the ability to communicate all of that yeah. to donors mm. and communities. I think the the really good leaders um, that I see in this sector are the ones that can sort of explain all of that in a way that is compelling and inspiring um, and also positions risk as not something to be avoided, but risk as an exciting mm. opportunity to be managed. Yeah, yeah. Um, language really matters around these things. Yeah, you're right. And um you know, we talk about risk-reward. So one has to say that if we want to really make a difference in a developing country, the risks are much higher, you know, because there are a lot more challenges uh, in a developing country. And so we really need um, investors. We need uh, not-for-profits 
that can appreciate and see uh, the challenge of those uh, demands um, and see that the rewards um, are just as great. So with that, what's the most important skill for a leader to have if you had to pick one? <laughs> well, I mean, you've already said that uh, the whole area of communication. And in fact, you know, to me, um, what the most uh, the most important skill for a leader who wants to engage in inter- international development is really the skill to be able to share your experiences and insights with the team on the ground as a fellow colleague, a fellow discoverer, right? There is, and, and all of us have experienced that, you know, we think we're giving, but we're receiving a lot more when we're on the ground. So I think that the, one of the best skills we could have and build is that of uh, being able to be a great coach and mentor to be able to not just only impart our knowledge and skills, but also actually our heart and love for people. Um, and and I, I really want to end with this, is that yes, we can do all the training, all the skilling, all the developing, but if we don't have the hearts of helping people, then we're still doing damage uh, in that organization. Yeah, so how do we share that values, the values of mutual help, the values of uh, betterment of society um, of what I call community transformation. And for me, true community transformation happens when there's spiritual transformation because the heart has got to change. And that's and that's the real skill we need. You know? Otherwise, you know, we help, we provide social enterprises, we still pro- we still have um, you know enterprises that might be successful, but people that are still greedy and wanting it for themselves. Um, So how do we transmit our values? Oh, again, that really resonates. And that's a point, uh, as you were saying it there, I realize we haven't talked about it enough on this series, but in my view, it's probably the most important Mm. quality of a leader is um, to do or to make those spiritual shifts internally so that you're ready to lead from the right place. Yeah. which is a, sometimes a really hard thing for, to, to, to explain and, and, and to do as a leader, but that personal um, development has to come first. Yes, definitely. And, and how is the heart demonstrated? You know, it is, it's behaviours. So, you know, one of the things I've always said is that um, the, the values of an organisation, which is the heart of the organisation, is demonstrated by our actions, by our values. So how do we transmit our heart is how do we behave? You know, how do we treat um, each other? Um, how in terms of respect, in terms of generosity, um, that those behaviors reveal what the heart is. And, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge of us as leaders. Mm, yes, I think that's great advice to finish on. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. That was Dr. Peter Chandra on Goodwill Hunters. This brings us to the end of the first instalment of our leadership series. Please stay tuned for an exciting announcement in the coming weeks. Next, though, you'll hear from the wonderful Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween recorded live at Oswater 2022. It's a fabulous journey through the conference, exploring why water will always be essential to development. We'll be bringing you the three-part series next week. 
See you then.